Hello and welcome to this episode of Epochs, where I am joined by Luca Johnson. Hello. How are you, sir? Great, great to be back, Bo. Thank you. And we're going to be talking all about the Fourth Crusade. Yes, yeah. The particularly spicy one. It is a bit spicy, isn't it? Yeah. I think there are <laughs> lots and lots of Crusades. If you go on Wikipedia or something, you look up a list of Crusades. There's loads. Yeah. Like well over a dozen. But this, the first four are the main ones. Right? Yeah, for uh, sure. The first four are the big four. Yeah, I think and, so. And... Um, the first three are sort of the same in the sense that the idea is to get to Jerusalem and they do at least get close to Jerusalem in all of those. Of course, the first crusade in 1099 actually successfully did it. Yeah. But the fourth crusade does depart a bit from that, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a few detours. Yeah. It was already supposed to be a detour because, you know, what, what people find as we go into this one is actually... Um, the fourth one kind of evolves off the third in what begins mm -hmm. as a very organic manner. Because back when Richard was obviously um, leading the third crusade, there was the entire thing that he gets to, he gets all the way to Jerusalem, but he can't quite take the city because he doesn't have the resources, he wouldn't be able to hold it. And one of the, the things that his advisors, his councilmen say to him then is, look, if you actually realistically wanted to take it, you would have to probably take Egypt or Cairo, or you basically just cut off Salah Hadin's uh, resource pool because obviously the Nile was just such a, you know, the basket case of um, Salah Hadin's um, resources in his army. So Egypt is the logical conclusion, and that's certainly mm. where they think it's going to go. But of course, it goes somewhere quite different. Right. Yeah. So the idea was, you're quite right. It sort of it comes out of the Third Crusade because the Third Crusade, um, which we've done recently. Mm. Um, was ultimately a failure in the most ultimate sense of retaking Jerusalem and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and mm. keeping it in, in sort of Christian or uh, Frankish hands, which had failed to do that. And so uh, Western Christendom decide that they're not just going to give up. And the, is it, it's Innocent III, isn't it, the Pope? Yeah, newly, newly appointed, I think, in 1198. Right. So, right... Um, as the um, sort of the as the old guard of the Third Crusaders are starting to obviously we know that Richard will only survive just into obviously 1199. Right. So a lot of yeah, it really is the turn of a new generation in a way. So the Fourth Crusade, the dates are usually given. It's like what 1202 to 1204, 1205. They're the dates, yeah, roughly. So yeah, not long. Like what, 10 years, 15 years at most after the Third Crusade. It's not that long. It's not like 40 years or 50 years have elapsed or 100 years. It's, it's pretty much in the medieval, early medieval terms, straight after in a way, isn't it? Just say continuous, yeah, really. Right, and right, and there right. is obvious, it's not really more anything than the footnote for this conversation. But obviously as well in the interim between the Third Crusade and the Fourth, you do actually have this this called the German Crusade, right? Yeah. you know, which is yeah. just a very brief affair, doesn't amount to a tremendous amount. But um, yeah, in which the, because um, obviously in Barbarossa died at the, in the Third Crusade quite unceremoniously. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But uh, his son went on to, Henry VI went on to, Tri Crusade, and he died out there as well, and it all amounted to very little in the end. But it's actually quite important for looking at the sort of political landscape of the Holy Roman Empire come the time of the Fourth Crusade. Right, yeah. Because I'll, I'll put a map up or something, but Brilliant. you can see the Holy Roman Empire is sort of, in a very, very loose sense, modern, modern Germany. Mm. But also, sort of more than that, 
and uh, of course a completely different political and religious entity to a modern nation state uh, but still you know extremely powerful sort of so all of central europe is in one way or another the holy roman empire mm. um, so let's sort of get into the details then of the fourth crusade i suppose the idea was like the other ones is still to take jerusalem off off the infidel yeah and i think you mentioned did you mention just a minute ago that the idea was that they'll take egypt first they'll sail and land at alexandria or somewhere mm -hmm. in egypt yeah take all of egypt to make that a base yeah so that the muslim hordes can't attack them from the south they right. can't do to richard what happened to richard on the third crusade i just keep penning him in and pushing him back if they make a firm stable base in egypt and then overland go up through sinai i suppose and up the levant and the holy land and mm. take jerusalem that way and that's the idea yeah basically none of that ends up happening none really <laughs> no none of that happens i i think the first thing straight out of the gate as well to mention with the fourth crusade is that Obviously, well, when you have the Third Crusade, it's um, it's a crusade of kings. Mm. I mean, it really mm. is, unironically, mm. crusade of kings, you know, with <laughs> Philip and, and Richard. But this one, there's, there's no kings on this crusade. Europe's, as soon as the papal bulls issued um, from Innocent the first time, there's not the level of uh, political appetite to go on it from the absolute apex of European society as there was before. Obviously, Philip II, Augustus, is still trying to retake his um, his French territories, and uh, obviously Richard's trying to retake the Angevin Empire, which um, Philip's trying to take from him, the Holy Roman Empire is in the Civil War. So they're not in a very uh, stable place to be, to be calling for a crusade at this point. So actually, when the Fourth Crusade was originally called, there wasn't originally that giant galvanization mm. of the populace that we'd seen before previously. Yeah, no, it's just when the First Crusade was called, mm. uh, back in the 1090s, was it? The original, original one. Yeah. There seemed to have been sort of this sort of scarcely believable groundswell of popular support. Mm. Then when the Second Crusade was called, I'm thinking of when Eleanor of Aquitaine and the old Louis mm. uh, sort of took the cross at that point. Again, there seems to be quite a large amount of popular support. And even the Third Crusade, um, even though quite often historians and scholars mention that people were taxed and you mm. were given tax breaks if you took the cross and that sort of helped Sounds popular great. support, <laughs> yeah. still seems to have been hard to deny that there was some sort of popular groundswell of support, the idea that um, Saladin's troops were occupying the Holy Sepulchre. Mm. But this one, Innocent calls a crusade more than once, doesn't he? And the right. first yes, time, as you times. mentioned, they're the first time people are like, oh, it's or ridiculously deep. dangerous and probably not going to work. And we Didn't only... the last two fail? Yeah, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, the last two failed, especially the second crusade, failed yeah. badly. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm not sure if I really, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not up for it this time. No. Um, but Innocent III was quite a, a singular figure. Yes. I, I don't know a tremendous amount, I have to confess, about like the history of popes or, you know, any sort of, but I, I know that within history, even, you know, he's quite a, a singular pope. He stands out. Yeah, he does, for Big sure. Big time, yeah. I mean, obviously, much later, it, he's the pope that's responsible for, of course, annulling Magna Carta. Right. You know, yeah, by yeah. the time we get to John and the Barons' War, that's still him. He's actually pope yeah. for quite a long time. And one of the reasons for that is 
he has in his advantage that he becomes Pope at the age of 37, which is still in full youth and vigour. very of, young. Your, your good days, actually. For a Pope, it's yeah, very young. Right? Quite often a Pope will be a really, really senior cardinal. and mm. you, you, you're, only, you're only Pope for a few years because you start as a very old man already. Yeah. So, yeah, Innocent III, among the list of medieval, certainly medieval Popes, uh, absolutely stands out. There's a few Gregories, but this Innocent the third is one of the most pivotal ones. I mean, he institutes a few different orders, and as like I say, his, uh, his papal reign is long. Hmm. Um, and yeah, he's one of those ones that, um, well, he, how to put it, he's sort of the opposite of a shrinking violet. He wields his power uh, like a weapon. Big time. Um, he doesn't sort of try and particularly try and convince people that they should probably do what's in their spiritual best interest. He's telling people. Subtlety is quite right. overrated for him. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. Uh... Yeah. So he's sort of quite a badass figure. Yeah. Um, and you don't sort of, you don't, you don't mess with him. His will is sort of very, very strong. Mm. Um, but, but as we mentioned, the first time he calls this fourth crusade, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of interest. No. Um, <clears throat> but then, <clears throat> pardon me, but then the second, or is, does he even do it a third time? Um, later, a few years later, right, he calls mm. it again and things have changed. And I suppose we have to get into the story of how, how, how intimately bound up the Venetian state is right. in the Fourth Crusade. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, before I do that, I will just okay. go to, I have this, um, this fantastic book here. I found it at this quaint little bookshop in Canterbury. But it's all first-hand accounts from the Crusades, Fourth Crusade. Um, so I have this one here that's written uh, from Innocent III to um, a gentleman called Fulk of uh, Newley. I'm butchering the French, of course. Uh, but this is him basically giving Fulk authorization to preach the Crusade, to galvanise people. It's quite a... To Brother Fulk. Having heard a long time ago a salubrious sample of your doctrine, we were made most happy in the Lord, imploring his mercy to strengthen the good work that he had initiated through you. Moreover, so that you, who are, according to the Apostle, engaged in evangelical work, may more fruitfully execute the office of preaching, especially for the relief of the province of Jerusalem, which we strive towards with all our might, and so that you may bring back multiplied the talent given you by the Lord, distributing it for the instruction of his people. We follow, we follow the example of him who, indeed, commissioned certain apostles, certain prophets, and yes, other evangelists, so that the sound of their voices might go out into the entire world and their words to the ends of the earth. We grant to you, by apostolic authority, full power, with the advice and assent of our beloved son Peter, Cardinal Deacon of Santa Maria in Via Lata, and Legate of the Apostolic See, whom we have specifically appointed to the execution of this office, to attach to yourself freely as assistants monks, black as well as white, meaning Benedictines and Cistercians, uh, or several canon regulars, whom you have ju uh, judged capable of preaching, and let no one contest this or any appeal stand in the way. According to the words of the prophet, they, along with you, uh, should sow upon the waters, lest the harvest be lost to the people, issued at the Latin of the nonce of November. Wow. 
Great. I love original text. So that's, that's a voice speaking directly from the late 12th century. It's incredible, it's really, isn't it's it? It's magical. Yeah. Absolutely magical. <laughs> yeah. And it's really eloquent as well, isn't it? So he's basically saying, uh, don't let anyone say you can't do this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Like, make it happen. Do it and do <laughs> it. Yeah. With all. It was one thing to note as well, but I think one of the reasons that Innocent reached out to Folk of all people is because they'd actually been acquaintances together at the University of Paris, okay. which was, I, I think, the most um, venerable university in Europe at the time. Um, I'm not too sure on that one, but no, that's, is, yeah, that's sure. what I've heard. Yeah. No, so, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the Venetians. Well, just say again, just, right. just, just before we get into that, the Venetians mm. play a massive part in this story, probably one of the biggest. Mm. But of the other Frankish or Western European Christian knightly contingents of this, mm. a lot of them do come from northern France, yes. right? Places like Amiens and Blois and in Flanders, sort of modern Belgium and things, and all sorts of counts and, and knights from there. Yeah. Uh, but they are sort of from all over as well, so I don't want to make people think it's just the Venetians and the French. There are sort of all sorts. Definitely. But a lot of them come from there. Yeah, they do. Um, and the main two, of course, being uh, Theobald of uh, Champagne, right. young, 20 years old, nephew of King Richard, yeah. and, um, and the French king as well, by way of um, Eleanor having one or two marriages. <laughs> so, yeah, he was very well connected in many ways he sort of had a uh, crusading in a uh, pedigree you know in his blood from right his, yes you that's know, what they say don't they yeah it was a perf be. perfect choice actually you know 20 vi vibrant full of youth and eager for uh, to go out and do god's work and with him obviously his cousin um the the other count of blue R, I, his name's escaped me right now i think it was might have been a henry but um a louis of course it was Louis, it's in France. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Louis, Count of Blois. And once they um, declared that they were going to go on the crusade at a, a tournament that they were holding in Ecri in the uh, in the Champagne region of France, I think that that was actually the tipping point because the uh, the it's all well and good for the Pope to say, look, I want this crusade, but unless you've got a really charismatic figure to lead it, it's so important with all of this because the, the men have got to have someone that they can believe in who's mm. going to be there with them to make them go all that way and back again. It's, um, it's an enormous weight of responsibility, of course, to put on someone's shoulders, no less so if you're 20. Yeah, incredible. People seem to have grown up a lot quicker <laughs> back then. Um, yeah, there's a Boniface was one of them, mm. Boniface of Montferrat. Uh, but yeah, there's there's Louis of um, Louis of Blois. There's a Baldwin of Flanders, Theobald Theobald of, of, of Champagne. Mm. So you know the Champagne Flanders Blois region. It's all yeah. right there. Um, they you know they they took it all very seriously. Yeah. Um, Regions ripe for Champagne and Crusaders, apparently. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so these contingents have to get to. Jerusalem, in, and in all Crusades, that's sort of half the, uh, more, in fact, way more than half the task yeah. is getting to the walls of Jerusalem. Mm. Actually, besieging and taking Jerusalem seems to be just the final cherry on a giant cake. <laughs> getting there is the hardest thing. You have to either, of course, 
fight your way all across Europe, through the Balkans, down through Anatolia, and down through the Levant, the Holy Land, all the way down to Jerusalem. Yeah, ask Barbarossa how that went. And the first, right, yeah, and yeah. the first crusade, uh, which is, of course, going to be a saga in and of itself. Or, as Richard and Louis tried in the third crusade, you could sail to, like, Acre or Jaffa or Haifa mm. or somewhere like that, mm. or Tyre. You could sail right there and then just hit inland to, to Jerusalem. Yeah. But if you're going to choose that route, then you have to deal with and accrue or build an entire navy to do that. Yeah. So which either choice you choose, it's it's going to be it's a real ask. It is. And so, they're what they settled on. Well, so the, a, a large contingent of crusaders made their way down to the northern Italian states, as as you said, is sort of. Um, common practice at this point, that's just traditional uh, crusading practice. But the thing is that Genoa and Pisa, I think, were currently at war with one another. That's right, yeah. And so they were kind of out of the question. So the entire weight of getting ships from anyone fell on Venice. Right. Um, and I suppose at this point it's uh, enter Doge Enrico Tandolo. Right, yeah. He's a, he's a great, great figure. Just before we do, just to say then mm. for people that might not know, I suspect a lot of people watching this do know, uh, but for any that don't, um, there's a few sort of great maritime Italian republics mm. or, or city-states rather still. And you mentioned Pisa, Genoa, Venice. They're the big three, really. Mm. Uh, but I, I would say it's really Genoa and Venice are sort of the main two. Pisa's no slouch, but... Um, and just because of politics and internal strife and war, um, as you mentioned there, it's really falls to basically Venice. Now, so Genoa and Venice on other sides of either side of Italy, northern mm. Italy, um, these are city-states that have got sort of quite incredible shipbuilding programs, right? It's not everyone in Europe that is capable with the best will in the world, even like France or even England. They don't really have the infrastructure to just build 50 ships, 100 ships, yeah. quickly not at this time not at no. this time because it's yeah. still really early we're talking the very 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 late 12th century the yeah. turn of the 13th century so mm. it's still really early you know the idea that, that, that england for example has got a great navy not really yet i mean it's under john in fact that the very very first very very first colonels of sort of a, a royal navy happen so anyway this tradition of being able to build quickly and for any sort of price any price there's only a few places that can do it and venice is one of them and at this point it's sort of only venice you know these crusaders the western the, the, the frankish french crusaders look around and it's their only real choice is venice yeah it is. and venice is controlled by it, it it's a republic is it already by this point i think so yeah it, it certainly becomes a republic but anyway the leader is the doge if anyone doesn't know that's just the name of their leader there's sort yeah. of a, the doge's palace and the doge of venice is sort of their their leader and he's less um he's not exactly a king he's sort of a bit more than a king in a way he's sort of a spiritual leader as well and a, mm. a commercial leader a figurehead Anyway, there's all sorts of ways you could describe what the Doge is, and over the centuries, the 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 sort of responsibilities, the the description, the job description of a Doge changes over the centuries. But at this point, 
the sort of the dominant absolute ruler really of in in various ways of Venice. And this guy at this point is, is a doge of doges. En Enrico Dandolo. <laughs> so yeah, if you want to tell us a little bit about old Dandolo. Well, I, actually, I, just on the personal note, I'd love to start by just saying that I first discovered this guy, I think, when I was actually on a like a caravan holiday in <laughs> Germany or something, right. back when I was just doing some like research for college or something, and I just sat there in my little chat, I think, for eight hours, just reading, <laughs> like, uh, I think it was one of Jonathan Phillips' books on the Crusades, but, like, even then, it was like, wow, this guy yeah. is just, like, something else. And it's not like he's magnificent and gets everything right it's just that i think because of the nature of his age because he was almost 90 by the time that the crusaders actually came to to meet him in venice and he was also blind uh, i think rumors during the day were that he'd actually been blinded by a byzantine emperor but i don't know how much stock there is to actually put in those they they could just be rumor and gossip yeah yeah not sure we're not sure quite how he lost his sight I, uh, the last thing i read i was listening to was saying that um he probably wasn't blinded by the byzantines but he may have been so we talked about how innocent pope innocent the third sort of stands out as a standout figure you know in in history you can't help but have sort of standout figures some people just bigger personalities than others but this dandolo the doge of venice mm. is sort of a scarcely believable figure. He, yeah, acts, he as soon as you sort of hear about him and what he did and how he behaved and what he achieved and all that sort of thing, it's, it's truly, truly remarkable. So as you mentioned there, straight away, is his extreme age. He's in his late 90s, sort of not, not knocking 90 years old, which in the late 12th century, early 13th century, is almost unheard of. Right. It's like someone being 130 years old now. It's like, it's right on the absolute, absolute, absolute limit of what is believable. It's like, it's not really, it's hardly anyone alive that's that age, if anyone. It's almost math um, almost mathematically far enough back that he could have been born just after the first crusade. Right, yeah. You know, that's how really like, you know, so all the previous crusades have been in his living memory. Yeah. You know, cause there's quite a bit of space obviously between the second and, Third, and he's never yeah. been on a crusade, obviously, personally, but uh, but he's quite eager for this one. And it's not just that he's old and blind, it's that he, a bit like Innocent the Third, or even more so, um, is not to be trifled with mm. in any sense. Yes. Like, he's not a doddering old man. No, no. He's, he's got, his, <laughs> his word, his will is, is absolute. And, and well, he strikes me, just a very, very general overview before we go into some details, but he strikes me as something like um, a, a mafia godfather. Perhaps it's a bit obvious to say something like that, where uh, if he's saying something, it's, it's life and death. It's like you, you're not going to mess with him. If, if he's asking for his money, you've got to pay up. You've got to pay up. Yeah. <laughs> If he's telling you yes or no on something, it's, it, that's it, it's yes or no. That's, yeah. that's it. So that's the sort of person he is. Um, again, the absolute opposite of a shrinking vibe, the absolute opposite of someone that can be manipulated. So yeah, have yeah. you got a quote there? No, well, actually, yeah, so this is from okay. Geoffrey of uh, Villardwin, uh, who was one of the crusaders sort of in the main council that made up the fourth crusade. So this is his, his eyewitness account of meeting the Doge himself. So. 
The Doge of Venice, a very wise and able man whose name was um, Enrico Dandolo, although he, it's actually in here as the, the, uh, the Frankish version of that, so they've called him Henry Dandolo, okay. actually, and it's just a point of trivia, uh, paid the French envoys great honour, and both he and the people of his household gave them a very cordial welcome. When, however, the letters they had with them had been duly delivered, the Venetians were very curious to know what business had brought these envoys to their country, since the documents they had presented were merely letters of credence, stating only that the bearers were to be accredited as if they were the counts in, uh, as if they were the counts in person, and that they would um, accept whatever arrangements their six emissaries saw fit to make. The doge, accordingly, said to the envoys, Sirs, I have read your letters, and we fully recognise that your lords are the highest rank in rank of all men, except only kings. They ask us to have confidence in whatever you say, and to believe that they will c confirm any arrangements they made with us. So please speak freely and tell us what you want. My lord, replied the envoys, we beg you most humbly to summon your council so that you may lay our lord's message before them and let it be called tomorrow, if it be convenient to, to you. The doge replied that he would need four days to do this and begged them to wait so long until his council could meet. Then they would say what they required. So he's, yeah, he... He just, as, as you said, everything is on his terms. Mm, you right, know, yeah. no, one, you're here in my city. This is my city. I am the <laughs> Alpha and the Omega. Right. And, yeah. and yeah. I, you know, and I don't care if you're all crusaders armed with swords. Like, no, no, this, this is not how we do things here. So they do come back a few days later. The Doge speaks to his councilmen because he still obviously has advisors. And, um, well, as you mm. said, it's a republic, but he's just the first among among many so he he speaks to the others and they come back and they uh, have a proposition uh, for the crusaders which is that we for the sum of 85,000 marks mm -hmm. silver marks yes yeah, silver marks which is not cheap um then we will because the crusaders essentially say uh, we were expecting 33,000 crusaders to turn up here in in Venice to, to be sailed upon. And so the accountants and all the mathematicians obviously tally it all up and they come out with the um, the economics of it and they say, okay, well, in order to justify for that many men, you'll need this many ships and they, they tot it all up and it comes to 85,000 uh, marks um, for 33,000 crusaders and obviously building hundreds upon hundreds of ships. And mm. so... Mm. And as you pointed out earlier, the Venetians are already fantastic shipbuilders by, you know, comparison to the other European powers at the times. But even for them, this is a particularly laborious effort. And it requires Venice to literally shut down its economy for a year. No one's to trade. No one's to... No, no, no. Your entire job for this year is to work building these ships. Mm. And so this is an incredibly high-risk game that Don Dalo is playing here. This is high risk, high reward, go big or go home, yeah. double or nothing. Yeah. Is, you know? yeah. I feel like maybe it's the obvious to say, although I haven't really heard many other historians say this, but, mm. um, and Dandolo does this m m even more later in the story, but where he's so old, 
I feel like maybe he this his psychology is that I've sort of got nothing to lose anymore. Yeah. You know, like I'm just gonna yeah throw the chips higher, uh, take massive massive risks and gambles because the best win in the world I'm going to be dead of natural causes very shortly anyway. Right. You know. Anyway. Anyway, that's just a little bit of speculation. Who knows mm. what was actually in his head and what his thinking was. But yeah. So let's recap exactly what's happened there. Okay. Loads of crusaders have turned up at Venice and said, we need ships. We, we can pay, but we need ships. And, and the Doge has said, uh, well, at first, has sort of not been sure about it. But then has obviously realised that, well, we can make lots of money out of it, if nothing else. And that is what sort of maritime trading city-states were all about, essentially. It's not about building a Mongolian-style, ancient Roman-style empire. It's about, it's about money. Yeah. So if... Okay, we'll build you dozens, hundreds of ships and sell you across, but it's going to cost you a pretty penny. So you mentioned this, the classic number always comes up, 85,000 silver marks. That's like twice or more than twice the entire annual revenues of France. It's a crazy number. Insane. It's sort of a crazy number. And even in later centuries, Venice has got a bit of a reputation for saying they'll do stuff. Uh, requesting a large amount of money, mm. getting the money, and then not really doing what they've been paid to do. Yeah. Uh, what's, so, anyway. what's changed? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so in Venice, um, have you ever been to Venice? I haven't actually. I, no, I've been to Venice uh, more than once, and it is it is nice. Um, mm. it, well, it depends what what you're into, but it's quite. There's a bit there that they called the Arsenal, which is where their shipbuilding yard, basically. And again, with the best will in the world, they're being asked to transport something like 10,000 horses, 10,000 knights, 20,000 men at arms. And of course, there'll be many, many, many more sort of camp hangers on, all sorts of Tons things. Tons of food and... Yes, know, endless amounts yeah. of provisions logistics. and fodder and all the logistics stuff. And then to sail that many ships, you need lots and lots and lots of sailors. Mm. So it's actually sort of, yeah, a giant expedition that they're being asked to make happen. So you can only imagine from Venice's point of view, from, from the Doge's point of view, it's like, well, uh, we could do this, maybe, just about, um, but it's, it's sort of a giant ask, it's sort of an unprecedented ask. You know, there's no way he could have known for a fact where well, we can definitely fulfil all these quotas. No. You know, so but anyway, he agrees to it for this huge amount of money. And as you say, yes, yeah, sort of almost well, basically sort of shuts down Venice to sort of try and make it happen. Yeah. And still a year goes by and they still haven't really built all the ships they need. And a lot of these ships are sort of, you know, not the highest quality, should we say. They're thrown together. A Converted bit. from, yeah, like, right. you know, Converted older stuff. And... That's right. Yeah. Um, so they're not quite holding up their end of the bargain, but then the Crusader side to gather this giant amount of money, they struggle to do that as well, don't they? They do. I, I think two things happen at this point. One, Theobald actually just dies. Right. Straight yeah, up. Right, you know, yeah, just, yeah. Like, at natural the age causes, of, right? Yeah, just natural yeah. causes. As, yeah. yeah, got a, a serious um, yeah, diagnosis of middle ages and just decided <laughs> that that was yeah. it. Um, a bloody flux yeah. or something. Who knows what it was? You just, you just died. Yeah, yeah, you just died. Mm. Um, but what actually this does is it, it reorientates 
the where the power lies in the in the crusade because obviously a lot of these men have gone down there thinking that they're going to be going on this crusade under this uh, heroic sort of french noble and as it turns out instead this is when obviously a boniface of montferrat is appointed the leader of the crusade and so it's like hang on we we were supposed to be fighting for this this great lord and now and doing around boniface is no pushover but mm -hmm. it's like but we didn't sign up to be governed by but to be led by some North Italian guy mm, mm. who's also actually quite sympathetic to um, the Holy Roman Empire, which in a sort of complex is um, not doing too great with uh, the papacy at this point either. Mm, mm, so there's mm. a lot of things going on there. and But obviously the other more obvious one, sort of even outside of the control of the death of Theobald, is that it was just quite presumptuous of the Crusaders to expect the entire host to meet at Venice and communication isn't that and obviously there's plenty from England and France who've come from Normandy and England where it's not um it's not helpful to go th through the continent it makes much more sense to sail around Portugal so not every crusader is naturally going to congregate on Venice as as a push-off point for the crusade. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.